Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We've sung about the joy of our Savior, which is a fitting note on which to turn to our passage this morning. We're turning to the Gospel of Mark in God's Word in the New Testament, and we're turning to chapter 12 in the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing in this series, watching Jesus respond to the opposition of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes. So far, we've seen him warn of the judgment that is coming against Jerusalem. We've seen him talk about how his disciples should think about taxes and the state. We've seen him talk about the power of God and the nature of our resurrection hope. And now, this morning, we're going to see him cut to the heart of God's commandments. Our passage today is Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And I encourage you to follow along with me as we read God's word this morning. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Father, this is your word, and we pray that you would use it this morning to give us a growing knowledge of our Savior and love for you. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There is something about us as human beings that loves to be able to reduce everything down to the one thing that really matters, the best of the best, the one thing we have to know. We regularly ask questions around our dinner table, and you probably do too, things like, well, what was your favorite thing about summer? Or what was the highlight of your day? If you were a guest uh, at our house, you might be asked a question like, well, what's the best book that you read in the past year? And sometimes when I'm teaching, I find myself saying things like, If you don't remember anything else that I said today, remember this. That's a natural instinct, and it turns out that the same tendency was true for the experts of God's law in Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees loved to ask important or famous teachers, which is the most important of all God's commandments? Or as some asked it, what is the one commandment that is more important than all the rest or which summarizes the whole of God's law. The Jewish Mishnah and Talmud, which gather teachings of these scribes and experts in the law, contain at least four different rabbis' answers to this question. 
It was something of a, a hot topic in the day, if you will. And so here, a scribe poses the question to Jesus as well. And if we want to boil down the essence of Jesus' answer right at the start, the, the key point is this. All the commandments of God are summed up by and flow from God's call to love him and love one another. All of the commandments of God are summed up by and flow directly from this call of God to love him and to love one another. Now, my goal this morning is to walk through the details of this conversation and then to consider its implications for us. So that's our plan. We'll, we'll start by walking through the details of the conversation. We start right at the top, verse 28, with the scribe's question. And just to review, the scribes were experts in the law, and they were closely associated with the Pharisees. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you'll often see them grouped together as the scribes and Pharisees. Now, technically, scribe referred to a profession. It was the group of those who were trained legally. They were legal copyists, teachers of the law, and interpreters of the law. So scribe was a profession. Pharisee was an ideology or set of beliefs that you subscribed to, a group of those who adhered to the tradition of the elders and were committed to God's law. So if you could imagine a sort of Venn diagram or interlocking circles... You could be a scribe by profession without adhering to the Pharisees' beliefs, and you could adhere to the Pharisees' beliefs without being a scribe, but many of the scribes were Pharisees, and the Pharisees were were scribes. So that's a little bit of the background of who we're talking about here. And if you think back to last week, Jesus was talking to the Sadducees, and you might remember that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along very well. And so the Pharisees are secretly absolutely delighted that Jesus has silenced and embarrassed the Sadducees and has given a brilliant defense of the resurrection from the dead. And one of them, Mark says, seeing that Jesus answered them well, decides to pose this popular question about what is the most important commandment of all. Now Matthew in his gospel clearly says that this scribe was still testing Jesus. This question, he says, is a test for Jesus. However, the spirit of the scribe's question is also different. This question is not a carefully planned trap like the previous two questions were. Rather, it is a question from this scribe who wants to see how Jesus is going to answer and what Jesus will prioritize when he does so. And so he asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, in verses 29 to 31, we find Jesus' response to the scribe. Although the scribe asked for one commandment, Jesus picks two. We like to do that sometimes, don't we? They say, pick one, and we slip in two. But Jesus has a reason for this, as we'll see. He begins by saying the most important commandment is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. For Israel, these verses functioned as a sort of statement of faith. Uh, Maybe they were slightly analogous to a Christian's Apostles' Creed, summarizing the core of what they believed. And a pious Israelite would recite these verses morning and evening each day. His verse begins by declaring who God is. He is the Lord, the I am who I am. 
the one who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who redeemed Israel from Egypt. This is the Lord and he is our God. And this Lord who is our God is one. And I think it's important to note that by saying the Lord is one, Israel was both proclaiming their monotheism, we believe in one God, and proclaiming God's preeminence. He is God alone. And you can see that from the scribe's response down in verse 32, when he says, you have truly said he is one and there is no other besides him. Those are both proclaimed in this statement. But then, having declared who God is, this verse summarized the faithful Israelites' response. To love this Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. This confession and call, Jesus says, is the most important commandment. Now you might notice, if you're looking at the details, comparing Deuteronomy 6 with Mark 12, that Jesus adds the mind to the list. To love the Lord our God now with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. However, I don't think that Jesus is trying to add something to the list that wasn't there before in Deuteronomy. Rather, a number have pointed out that the idea of our mind was very much included with the Hebrew words for heart and soul and might. And so it seems likely that Jesus is just adding clarity in the Greek to what the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 6 was saying. But either way, the point of both is the same. We're not supposed to cut and chop and distinguish, well, what's your heart and what's your soul and what's your mind and what's your strength and figure out individually how to operate each one. No, the point of both is to say all of us, every part of us, in our affections and in our thoughts and in our will and in our desires and our energies, all of us, is to love the Lord our God. And this statement makes it clear that it's not just all of us, but it's the entirety of all of us. Notice it says we are to love God with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind and our whole strength. It's hard to imagine a more comprehensive way of saying that our entire being and everything about us is to be committed to the Lord our God as the chief and unrivaled and unmixed object of our love and devotion in every way. And that, Jesus says, is the first and most important commandment. But, but Jesus doesn't stop there. In one sense, he's answered their question, but then he says, no, there's a second. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we want to ask, well, what does Leviticus mean by loving our neighbor as ourself? The context of Leviticus 19 gives us a pretty good idea of what it means. This statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is the final statement in a whole section of laws telling us how we should treat one another, how we should treat our neighbor. And the laws require Israel to both care for one another positively. They are not to reap their fields all the way to their edges, but leave a portion of the harvest for the poor and the sojourner and the vulnerable. That's a positive care. And at the same time, they are not to harm their neighbor negatively. They are not to steal, lie, deal falsely, oppress, curse, do injustice, show partiality, hate, or take vengeance against your neighbor. And so it is both the positive statement of how you are to care for your neighbor and the negative statement of how you should not harm your neighbor that is wrapped up in this summary, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this 
phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? Well, I'm pretty sure it does not mean what our uh, modern uh, self-esteem age likes to say. And they say, well, look at this. We are supposed to love ourselves. And that's not the direction this verse is going. You might think of, you might think of Ephesians chapter 5, for instance, where Paul says, a man should love his wife as he does his own body, for no one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cares for it. In other words, what Scripture is saying is we, we have an, an automatic instinct to care for ourselves. Maybe with certain deviations like junior high boys who don't want to take showers and cover their body over with axe. But setting aside those deviations, we have this natural instinct to care for ourselves and do what is good for us. And that is what Leviticus 19.18 is saying. That's its logic. If someone offers you a free sandwich, you take it because you're watching out for your good. If someone accuses you of lying when you've been telling the truth, you vehemently defend yourself. If an older sibling picks on you, you protest against the wrong. And someone doesn't have to teach you to do those things. You do them automatically because you're caring for yourself and defending yourself. And what Leviticus is saying is, we should have the same instinctual desire to seek another person's good and to defend them, especially the poor and the weak and the sojourner. The same instinctual hatred for seeing our neighbor wronged that rises up in us ourselves. Now I find it interesting, I mentioned that there's at least four other rabbis who answered the question, what is the most important commandment in the whole of the scriptures? And all four of them quote this verse in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, or one very similar to it. It seemed to be pretty well accepted in Israel that something along the lines of love your neighbor was a summary of the whole law. And Jesus agrees partially. Jesus agrees that to love one another is the root and summary of all the laws that tell us how to treat one another. But Jesus says that summary of the law is actually an outflow of the first most important commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And these two, love for God and love your neighbor, belong together. They're, they're two sides of a coin, if you will, but there's, but there's an order to them. There's a hierarchy to them. We love the Lord our God first, and from that flows our love for one another. And the New Testament really affirms this again and again. James chapter 2 and 1 John in chapters 2, 3, and 4 argue you can't claim to love God and hate your brother. But at the same time, it is only when we know the love of God and his love for us first that we will then flow out in love for one another. If you wanted to imagine Jesus' statement as a mural, it would be the picture of a tree where the roots from which everything springs is a love for the Lord our God with all that we are. And the trunk that flows from those roots would be loving our neighbor as ourself. And from that then, all the branches of every individual law in God's word, which flows from those roots and that trunk. That's Jesus' response to the scribe's question. Well, then we look at verses 32 to 34, where we find the scribe's assessment of Jesus' answer. Now, it's hard to know exactly what the scribe expected Jesus to say. But if you think about Jesus' reputation, Jesus had a reputation among the Pharisees for undermining God's Old Testament law 
and the traditions of the elders and maybe putting too much focus on himself. So maybe the scribe was expecting him to say something that would be problematic. But when the scribe hears these words, he affirms them. He says, you are right, teacher. You have said truly that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this statement from the scribe is a very wise statement. It is exactly what the Old Testament said. It shows that he knows the scriptures. Because if you just think back to the Old Testament, you would find in Hosea chapter 6 verse 6, God declaring that he longed for his people's steadfast love and his people's knowledge of him more than he wanted burnt offerings and sacrifices. And if you looked in Micah chapter 6 or Isaiah chapter 1, you would find the Lord saying that he desired doing justice and correcting oppression and loving kindness and walking humbly with your God more than he wanted offerings and sacrifices. So the scribe is right. Jesus has correctly summarized the Old Testament. A simple look through the Old Testament affirms that. And Jesus says to the scribe, good job, scribe. You have listened to the Old Testament. You have answered wisely. But look there at verse 34, because I want us to consider Jesus' final comment after the the scribe's affirmation. Jesus adds, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That's a very interesting response, and it's a different response than the way Jesus responded to, say, Zacchaeus when he said, today salvation has come to your house. Jesus didn't say that. Because to be not far from something still implies that you're not there yet. And Jesus, I think, is indicating that this scribe has the right first step. He understands that his love for God and his response to God is not about checking the box of 600 laws. It's not about uh, these various little details of sacrifices. No, it is about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the necessary first step. But... The scribe is still missing the crucial step. Because you remember how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10 verse 4 when he says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, if you really want to follow the Old Testament law, yes, you have to start with a love for God. But all of those laws, every part of the law, all of the prophets, they're all pointing towards Christ. We only find the righteousness of the law when we look to Christ. And we only find that righteousness when we look to him through faith in him who believes in him. And so Jesus is saying, you've got the heart of it right. You're headed in the right direction. I think of how Paul says in that very passage, the Jews do have a zeal for God. But it's a zeal without knowledge because it's missing that key point. You can know God's word awfully well. You can know God exists. You can even want to love God with your heart. You can even do many of the good things in the law. But the only way to salvation, the only way into the kingdom, is to follow Jesus through faith in him. And if we aren't resting by faith in Christ alone for salvation, we are not yet in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus commends the scribe's heart, but he also warns the scribe that he is not yet in the kingdom. Well, these are the details of the conversation as we follow through the scribe's question and Jesus' answer. And then the scribe's and Jesus' dialogue about that answer. But I want to take a few minutes now to consider the implications 
of these verses for us. These are the kinds of verses that it would probably do us well to read every single morning and to meditate on every morning and hold up to our hearts and our lives. But I want to focus our attention on three implications from Jesus' words. Here's the first. The first implication is our ability to fulfill the most important commandment, to love the Lord our God, starts with a recognition of who God is. We can't properly respond to God if we do not know who he is. And we see that right from the first words Jesus cites. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Before Deuteronomy or Jesus ever get to how we're supposed to respond to him, it begins by declaring who this God is that we're supposed to respond to. It's not a God in general. It's not a higher power. It's not a cosmic force. Not a God that any religion can point us to. No, it is the Lord who speaks in Scripture, who says, I am who I am, the self-existent one. It is the God who makes covenant with his people and redeems them. It is the God who is a lone God and preeminent above all. The God who is so far above anything else that he is worthy of everything we could give him. You know, even when we, we look at people and we might say that someone is better at something than, than others, the amount of honor or praise we give them is often determined by how much better they are than everyone else. I'm a, I'm a sports fan and I was thinking about this. Each year in college football, they give out an award, the Heisman Trophy Award, to the best football player in that season. And some years, of course, it's kind of hard to decide. You've got all these hundreds of football players, which one is actually the best? And it's a close battle. But then other years, there's one player who is so far above everyone else that it's kind of obvious what's going to happen. In 2005, Reggie Bush was a running back at the University of Southern California, and he won an astounding 92% of the votes for the Heisman Trophy Award winner. And and he was honored even more than many Heisman Trophy Awards because he was that much better than all the competition. That's just comparing athletes to each other. If we're going to ask how much greater God is than every other being, how preeminent, how alone he is in comparison to every other one, God is categorically beyond and higher than every other creature. God is the one who is high and lifted up, who is holy in majesty, who is the creator and everyone else is a creature. He is the one who is worthy of all of our worship, all of our affections, all of our obedience. This is who God is. And our response to him, our love for him will start with a recognition of who this God is that we're called to love with all that we are. That's the first implication of Jesus' words. The second implication is that our entire being is to spring forth in love for God. Maybe when we say this, we should pause for just a second and remember what it means when we say that we are to love God. After all, if we're not careful in our, in our current cultural context, it could be easy to reduce love to a certain level of emotional feelings that we have. Now, Love for God is absolutely not without passion. If we have no passion, it is likely that there is not genuine love there. But love for God cannot be reduced to how much emotion we display. Rather, I think we can define and describe love for God this way. Our love for God 
is a commitment to him before anything else. Because he is worthy of honor above everything else. And because we value or delight in him more than anything else. I'm going to say that again. Love for God is a commitment to God before anything else. Because he is worthy of honor above everything else. Because we value and delight in him more than anything else. I think this is what the psalmist was getting at in Psalm 63, 1 and 2, when he writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. You hear that commitment to God, my God? that value and desire for God more than a thirsty man in a dry desert and that honor and worship of God as he beholds his power and glory. That is what we mean when we talk about our love for God. And Jesus argues that this love for God should arise from every square ounce of our being, from our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength, every molecule of who we are should comprehensively and completely be poured out in a love for this God. This love for God is not to be one among many loves that vie for our attention. It is to be the chief love and desire of our whole being that controls our actions, our desires, our thoughts, and our words. After all, John Owen, a great Puritan writer, puts it this way. He says, All the designs of God's effectual grace are suited to and prepared for this end, namely to recover the affections of man to himself. In other words, God's great aim is to turn our hearts to find in him the greatest object of our life and our love. That is the aim of God's great salvation. However, John Owen also reminds us this. He says, But on the other side, all the tricks of the world, all the paint it puts on its face, all the great promises it makes, all the false appearances and attires it clothes itself with by the help of Satan, have no other end but to draw and keep the affections of man to itself. In other words, we find ourselves in the midst of a great battle between God who is acting to draw and return our affections to himself as the one who is chiefly worthy and the world and the flesh and the devil who is seeking to keep our affections here. And when when I read this, I'm immediately struck by how far short of this idea of undiluted perfect love I fall. If I was going to describe my love for God, wouldn't I have to describe it as often mixed with other loves that vie for my attention and often variable, coming and growing as I get frustrated with the car that needs another repair or distracted by another purchase I want to make or annoyed when someone says something hurtful to me? Isn't that how I would often have to describe myself? Now, R.C. Sproul points out that if this is the greatest and most important commandment at all, then we have fallen short of the greatest and most important commandment of all. And if I have fallen far short of the greatest and most important commandment, I'm immediately struck by two more things. First, how much I need Christ. Because apart from his blood, I'm sunk. 
He alone loved God perfectly. He alone has loved us to the end. And he alone can atone for my repeated failures to do what God has called me to do. But Christ did die to atone for my sins. He died for my salvation, so I must run to Christ. And in him I find the one I need. And then secondly, I'm, I'm struck by how right it is that the Lord our God, the one who is worthy above all and the one who sent us this Christ, should be the object of all of my love. This isn't just something that God says, well, I'm making this command, you got to love me. No, given who he is and give us what he's done for us in Christ, it is absolutely right and appropriate that he should be the object of every love that I have and all that I am. That this goal of his grace in my life is what I should pray for and strive for and pursue that my whole heart and soul and mind and strength might be engaged in its love for him. And so that's the second implication of Jesus' words. And then finally, a third. Jesus, when he summarizes the most important commandment, apparently does not think he can stop with the most important commandment. But he adds that to love our neighbor as ourself is a necessary companion to loving God with our whole heart. As I reflect on the church broadly, it seems to me that as a, the church is tempted to fall off the boat in one of two directions. On the one hand, which is perhaps more, more characteristic of the mainline or, or liberal Protestant churches, the temptation has been to flip the order of these commandments and to put the love for others first. So that as long as I'm loving others and doing good and caring for the poor, I have expressed the heart of God and I don't need to put nearly as much attention on God's commandments and word themselves because I am loving others. But the second, perhaps more characteristic of the American evangelical church, has been to adopt an overly individualistic stance where the only thing that matters is me and God. And from there, I don't really need to think about anything else. I wouldn't really need to focus on loving others or how I act to others as long as I've just focused on me and God. And both errors miss Jesus' statement. Christ's words call us first above all to love the Lord our God with all that we are obeying his word and trusting his son whom he sent, but then out of that love to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I wonder if we were to ask ourselves the question this week and, and meditate on the question, think about how automatically I protect myself and do what's good for myself, to rest when I'm tired, eat when I'm hungry, make decisions for my good, defend myself when criticized. What would change about me if I acted with that same instinct to love others and to defend others, if that same proactive, instinctive energy to love those around me, who in my school, who at my work, who here in the church needs my help, my encouragement, my defense, my welcome, my care, not because that's how I'm saved or because I have to, but because the God who loved me and saved me has called me to demonstrate his love by loving my neighbor as myself. Where might we need to repent? Where might we need to express Christ's call? More specifically, that's the third implication of Jesus' words. So this is our call this morning. 
Jesus, of course, exemplified it perfectly. He loved his father and obeyed him to the end. He pursued the poor, defended the weak, healed the sick, and invited them into the kingdom of God through faith in him. And now that Jesus says, come, follow me, this is the most important commandment of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, who has come and shed his blood that we might belong to him. And how I pray that the work of your spirit would be within us to give us a more comprehensive love for you above everything else. And how I pray that we would live that love out by loving one another as you've called us to do. And I pray that this would all be to the glory of your name and the good of your people. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.